0: With all of its tall buildings, pollution, and excess light, New York City might be the last place you'd think of for viewing the night sky. But actually, the Big Apple isn't all that bad for stargazing. Good morning, I'm George Boracchi, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Coming up on this morning's show, the best spots to view the stars in light-polluted New York City. These are open spaces without lights in your view. Also today, what do the stars have in store for John McCain and Barack Obama? A Manhattan astrologer joins us later this half hour with his predictions for Election Day. For some people, stargazing in New York City involves looking out for celebrities in trendy restaurants and nightclubs. But for others, it means finding the ideal spot to view the glittering night sky. Our first guest this morning is here to help us with the latter. Richard Rosenberg is the president of the Amateur Astronomers Association of New York. Richard, welcome to Cityscape. Good morning. Tell me a little bit about your organization. How long has it been around?
1: Well actually we've been around 80 years. Wow. Quite a long time. For many years we were affiliated with the Museum of Natural History which provided space. Over time the museum just kept running out of space and we had to make our own way and we are currently located at 1010 Park Avenue on a on a church. We are kind of looking at new headquarters at uh upgrade and have, you know, the technological facilities that we'd like. You know, a whole set of uh, complement of things that can really can provide to our members and to the public uh, a facility of a, of a modern presentation with all the all the modern gatherings of things like PowerPoint and, and so forth. Who are your members? Most people will probably think of us as a bunch of people looking at the stars. And indeed, we have many people, including myself, many members who are interested in doing exactly that and bringing our telescopes and looking to see what's up there. But we also have a lot of people that never look up, that are really interested in astronomy as a subject matter, which is a fascinating subject, and also of what's going on. The recent discoveries, which come up, weekly. It's just amazing. The, you know, the progress in a way we're making, of course, it seems like every time we discover something that, that leads to two new questions. What's been the most interesting recent discovery? One thing that just happened uh, last week, a week ago today, uh, an asteroid hit Earth. Get out of town. <laughs> Where <laughs> yes, did this it happen? It actually happened uh, above. Fortunately, it apparently did not land, although who knows, there may be um, meteorites from it, but it passed over Sudan and probably exploded in the atmosphere. It was discovered, uh, it's called asteroid 2008 TC3. It was discovered in late 2008, and after observing it a few times, they can calculate the orbit, and it was discovered it was going to hit Earth, but fortunately it was only about 10 feet in diameter. So it's a decent size, and it creates apparently a very nice light show when it's falling through our atmosphere, but it essentially burns up, except possibly for a few Tiny particles that might make it to Earth.
0: Yeah, chances are pretty slim that we'll be hit with a large asteroid,
1: right? Depends over what time frame you're talking about. I would say our odds for the next, uh, you know, 1,000, 10,000 years are pretty good. But of course, you know, we now know, of course, what happened about 65 million years ago. Uh, that supposedly was the demise of the uh, dinosaurs.
0: Mm-hmm. The asteroid that hit the Yucatan Peninsula.
1: Yes, yes. And uh, that really has made a profound change. Actually, I, I've noticed it in astronomical research has actually been thriving, to tell you the truth, in part because one of the um, – how do you evaluate the, the probability of, of a disaster? As we see, rocks are, in fact, rocks, tiny bits of matter are constantly falling on Earth. Uh, I think we get a few tons a day of dust actually fall onto Earth. But they, of course, do no harm. If you've got a big object, it can do damage. We don't think there are any super big objects like the one that did the dinosaurs in. But there are some out there that could probably uh, demolish a city if they're in the wrong place or probably more likely to do damages if they landed in the ocean. And created a tsunami, a tidal wave. Hopefully, we have the technology, though, to destroy it before it hits. Mm, That's a good question. Of course, first we have to find it first. And that's where uh, that's actually been to the benefit of astronomy because there's a lot of money and a lot of projects going on to detect sizable asteroids. We've discovered an incredible number of them. So now there are tens of thousands that we know about. And for the most part, they are not issues. For us, they're not going to hit us, uh, at least anywhere in the near future, where near means several thousand years. There is, however, one asteroid called Apophis that is a problem, conceivably. It passes very close to Earth within the orbit of the moon, and it's going to come by next time. We have a good idea where it's going to be, and it's going to be a close miss next time around. I think that's somewhere in the 2020s. Hmm. In the following decade, it'll pass by again, and that's the one we're worried about because this is one of those sizable ones that could wipe out a city or create a tidal wave. So fortunately, in the 2020 pass, we'll be able to see, to refine its orbit enough so that we will determine whether we'll get in trouble in 2030 or not. And uh, hopefully, we'll be uh, quite advanced in terms of our abilities to not only know where the object is, but to be able to send the spacecraft to it and figure out how to probably, rather than blow it up, deflect its orbit. So Fingers just,
0: crossed here, Richard. Fingers crossed.
1: Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, be interesting. I, I don't know if I'm going to be there for that. Another thing that's really going to change, I think, the face of the way astrono- astronomical research is done, is we're going to have a bunch of what they call survey telescopes uh, that's already started. And I think a large part of the genesis of it or the funding for it results, again, from the worry about an asteroid hitting Earth. These are, well, they're going to be, one is is, is just starting up and will become active in a few years. Another one will be in the uh, mid-teens. And they will be able to look at large sections of the sky, and yet with incredible accuracy, that is to say incredible detail, and with incredible light-gathering power. And what they will do is they will cycle through the sky, taking photographs of large regions for the entire region of the sky that it could see, depending on where it's put on Earth, and every few days go through it again and see, using computers, what's changed. And we expect that there will be a phenomenal number of things that it discovers have changed, that either by, most commonly by its brightness will change or color might change. And this will in turn provide... A massive amount of projects for other astronomers and amateurs to do.
0: I was going to ask you, what kind of telescope do you recommend for mm. the amateur astronomer? Very,
1: it's very controversial, and it depends on your interests. I can say in general, first of all, so many people go wrong when they get a telescope because they go to a department-type store or certain other stores that just people there do not have the knowledge. It's a um, peripheral item that they sell. And they have no generally speaking, they have no knowledge of of how it works. They just say, "Well, just use the manual its self explanatory and believe me it 's not
0: i 've tried it trust me, i know it 's not it was well, not easy
1: in fact, yesterday, I was uh, with someone who same thing just trying to bring him up to speed. He had years ago gotten a telescope from a store and just could never got anywhere with it so uh, it it does take time and experience. We made some progress." <laughs> So that's the first advice uh, I could recommend. Uh, generally speaking, the photography stores are the ones that also provide astronomy services and are knowledgeable. That's that's the key thing. I can mention a few in New York. Is that okay? Please yeah. do. Okay, one is Adorama, which is on uh, 18th Street in Manhattan. They have some people there that are extremely knowledgeable and and very helpful. And B&H is good, also Focus Camera. Those are the three, I think, main sites in New York City. There are many others, of course, in the suburbs and all around, but there are also, of course, many other places you should not go to.
0: Now, your organization, as you mentioned, has been around for some 80 years. I would imagine that stargazing in New York City has changed quite a bit over the past several decades.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Of course, everybody, I hope everybody at this point has at least heard about light pollution. We have lost so much of our ability to just look at the sky and and be fascinated by it and enjoy it. I'm old enough that I I know the difference between my youth and and the things now, and it it just seems to get worse, even though we're we're aware of it, and hopefully we will do something about it. The tragic thing and the silly thing, really, is that the light pollution we're talking about is the one that goes up into the sky. And so it does, other than rare instances where... uh, for example, that memorial at the World Trade Center, which, of course, nobody is talking about stopping that. But just carelessness. Uh, all, the, all of our um, light uh, fixtures for our streets and our roads, our highways, some of that light goes upwards. And what we need to do is simply install, just modify the fixtures so that the light, all, and all the light goes downwards. And what, what you can do with that is massively save on energy. Because the same amount of light now, uh, a a much less amount of light, but focus where you need it, which is downwards, will save a lot of money, save a lot of energy costs. But it's just a matter of care and putting the light where it's needed, which is on Earth.
0: That all being said, where are the best places to view the stars in New York City?
1: Open areas where you can in parks, if there are parks that have uh, clearings. For example, we we have a, a preserving session at Prospect Park. There's a nice clearing, and you don't have lights nearby. You don't have bright lights shining into your eyes nearby. The Great Lawn in Central Park is another area, and we have an event every year at the Sheep Meadow in Central Park. Again, these are open spaces without lights in your view. Another uh, good location is at the waterfront. In many cases, for example, near me, near where I live, is the uh, Brooklyn Heights Promenade. It's a wonderful view as well, even without the stars, but you get to see a lot of the sky and you get to see events. Now what you can see in New York as well as countryside is the bright planets and the moon. With a telescope, it's spectacular because you really can see the craters, light up the features, the mountain ranges, regions that are flat, they call the Mariah, which are lava plains. We constantly, whenever we have observing sessions and show people the moon, it's amazed how many people not only have never seen it before but didn't even think it was possible.
0: Any times during the month that are better to view the moon?
1: The best time is, actually, I consider, uh, around first quarter when the moon is up conveniently. It's uh, it, it, it's up in the early evening, sets around midnight at that time, and uh, half the moon is lit. Even though it's uh, first quarter, that means the first quarter of its phase is running going around the Earth, but it's actually half-lit at that time. And uh, the line between separating the lit-up region and the dark region is called the Terminator. And uh, along there, you have very long shadows, so that craters really stand out. And you look at it, for example, you might see um, uh, the top of a mountain lit up, surrounded by darkness, because it's catching light. Just fascinating things like that. The full moon, although you can see the entire moon, is not fun for us, uh, for the most part, because there are no shadows. And so everything kind of looks flat. The um, craters that you can see don't have the same impact. They don't really stand out from the background.
0: Here we are in October, Richard. What planets are most visible in the night sky this month?
1: Venus is an inner planet. That is, it's between Earth and the Sun. As we see it, it, it moves from one side of the Sun, the left side, say, to the other side, as seen from the Earth. And when it's in the left side, it, it enters the evening sky. And on the right side, it's in the morning sky. It never gets that far from the sun, but it, it is such a bright object that it becomes easier to see after a while. And that's just beginning to happen right now. That if you look after sunset and look in the southwest, you should see a bright object. You might also be see some planes and so forth. So make sure, you know, after a few minutes, it doesn't go away. Uh, a lot of people think it's a UFO, but it's the planet Venus, and it's by far the brightest planet because it's so close to Earth and because it is, turns out it's surrounded by clouds that reflect a lot of light. That's very important. We call that the albedo, the percentage of light an object uh, reflects. So that really is a large uh, factor in determining how bright an object is. Now, also in the sky right now in the south is Jupiter, and if you look in that direction, Jupiter will be up at sunset. And again, Jupiter and Venus will overpower anything else. You won't have any doubt which are the two objects. They're there. Now, the interesting thing is, as the weeks proceed, Venus is going to get a little farther from the sun, and Jupiter is going to move towards Venus. And day by day, that's going to happen finally on... Last day of November, November 30th, Venus is going and to, and Jupiter will be together. they will be only two degrees apart. What's two degrees? Well, the diameter of the sun or the moon is about half a degree, and which isn't much. You can cover it with your pinky. Stick your pinky out at arm's length, and it will cover the moon or the sun. So imagine four moon widths, and that'll be the distance between the two planets, which are really, really bright. And then even better, on the following day, December 1st, the crescent moon will come by and join them. So you'll have three objects, each about roughly two or three degrees from each other. And it'll be, uh, you know, really a tremendous sight. Even someone, you know, not too sensitive to uh, things going up in the sky will notice if they if look in the right place. And we're going to have a, a few events there. We're going to have an event on November 30th in Central Park. We'll gather with scopes and binoculars and so forth. And the best way, by the way, to keep track is on our website, aaa.org.
0: Sometimes on a clear night, the stars look so close that you can just reach up and grab them. But in reality, how far away is the closest
1: star? Well, the closest star is 93 million miles away, because that's the sun. The closest star, other than the sun, closest star to our solar system, is Alpha Centauri. And Alpha Centauri, we measure that distance in light years. It's a little over four light years. And light, which travels about uh, 300,000 kilometers a second, or about 180,000 and so miles a second, takes four years to reach us from Alpha Centauri. And a light year in miles is about 6 trillion miles. So a trillion is a million million. So we are talking about... Far away. Do you think we'll ever reach those stars? Of course, we can get into relativity now, which uh, some of our members are really into. If we can figure out a way to travel at very high velocity, our, you know, the time slows down. So it, it is conceivable, but who, who knows, uh, after a few more centuries, if we still exist, after a few more centuries, because we might blow ourselves up or, or whatever or pollute ourselves to death. Who knows what we'll be able to do.
0: We talked about asteroids earlier, and we will have an opportunity to see an asteroid in the coming days, right?
1: Well, it won't be easy, especially from New York, but there is the fourth asteroid to be discovered called Vesta, it turns out to be the asteroid that is generally brightest among all the asteroids. It can be naked eye if you're not from New York anymore, but from the countryside if you know where to look. It's going to be magnitude 6.5, which is kind of faint, but seeable from New York City with binoculars. Again, if you know where to look going to be what we call opposition on october 29th remember that's like full moon was opposition in other words it's right opposite the sun from earth at that point that's usually around when it's closest to earth if you think about it now, if you go to our website aaa.org, we have a page called uh, this month sky and uh, we feature a few of the events going on and we we have actually maps one of one of the events is the opposition of vesta and you can get a star chart and uh, Try to find it for yourself if you've got a decent pair of binoculars. How often are meteor showers visible? There are many of them. Uh, Most of them are quite minor. There are about four or five decent ones in the course of a year. What they are, for the most part, are remains of comets. Uh, A comet has come by, and as a comet nears the sun, the heat from the sun, the comet contains ices. It melts the ices, and part of it, the comet actually breaks apart, and it, like, throws off this material each time it goes around, rocks and ice and so forth. Those are now called meteoroids in space, tiny bits of particles that are in our solar system. If they're orbit of these particles, these just like the Earth, these meteoroids orbit around the sun in a certain path. If that path intersects Earth the particles will enter Earth's atmosphere and burn up, and we'll see a meteor.
0: I would think that that would be catch-as-catch-can. You can't forecast that,
1: can you? Well, we do know uh, there are a lot of random meteors that we can't. We call those sporadic meteors, and we don't know. They're kind of individuals. But there are, the showers are where they occur in groups, and they're very noticeable. They were noticeable to the ancients. where you just see one after another. Uh, we had a spectacular one in the year 2000, uh, the Leonid meteor shower. The Leonids are f- fascinating. They don't produce a lot of meteors most years. But every 33 years or so, they have one dense part of their orbit that when it runs through Earth's atmosphere, it's sensational. And literally, well, I saw several thousand meteors that night. I went out to, to Connecticut and where the sky was dark. And even in New York, if you knew what was going on, you had a great time. Generally speaking, however... Uh, From New York City, you'll see a few meteors an hour, even from the best meteor showers, because uh, it's just too bright. Where is
0: your favorite place outside of New York City to Mm -hmm. view the night sky?
1: Well, I like to go into the Catskills. Generally speaking, if you go in the right direction, you go 100 miles from New York or so, you will be in a nice, dark sky. You can see literally thousands of stars. Well, once again, your website is? AAA.org uh, unfortunately. One early member of ours was at one of those sites that give out website names. So as the internet started, we got that name very early.
0: And that, of course, stands for Amateur Astronomers Association. Richard Rosenberg is the president. Richard, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boracki. It's one thing to gaze at the stars, but it's another thing to read them. William Stick Evers is an astrologer here in New York City. He joins us now to help us get a better understanding of astrology and tell us what the stars might have in store for Barack Obama and John McCain. Good morning, William. Thank you for having me. First of all, what's the difference between astrology and astronomy?
2: Astrology is a method of astral divination. So they're completely different subject matters, completely different paradigms. Astronomy looks at the universe and it quantifies what the universe is, whether it's looking at planets, stars, quasars, etc. Astrology is essentially a symbolic system that looks at the position of the planets at a particular time and place, depending on what's being measured up And analyze, whether it's a chart of a nation or a horoscope of a person, and looking at the qualitative analysis, the symbolic speculative analogy, if you will, of what that moment means.
0: I must say, it's pretty hard for me to get my head around it. It's not easy to understand.
2: No, it's not. It's not really about the stars. It's more about the position of the planets at the time of birth based on a specific locality in time.
0: And this is how we figure out what we read in the paper as
2: far as the horoscopes
0: are no, concerned? That's, no, <laughs>
2: that's just complete ent- entertainment. There are different kinds of astrology, right? Absolutely. There's all different methods, uh, different schools. There's for example, most people are familiar with natal astrology, looking at the chart or horoscope, if you will, of a person. Then there's mundane astrology, which we're going to talk about today, about planetary cycles, which falls under political and financial astrology. There's horary astrology, which is a very interesting. It goes back again to the Kartaki method or the Kertaki Ritual of divining a specific answer to an outcome, an oracle. That's what you
0: practice, right? That's
2: what I practice. I actually practice all these systems. But um, I employ horary, this method of you ask a question, you take the time and place that the question is understood by the astrologer. And from there, you can give an immediate and specific answer that can later be tested at some past point.
0: And you also mentioned, what was it, mundane astrology? Mundane
2: astrology, mundus, the world. This is a chart of the rise and fall of nation states, of empires. It has to do very much with politics, right? And it has to do with cycles that affect nature, economies, especially when it, in regards to food supply and energy resources. So let's talk about the economy. Everyone sure.
0: wants to know, is it going to get worse before it gets better? And Unfortunately, what, I… It better? <laughs>
2: I did a lecture about a year ago exactly at this time, The Coming Economic Collapse of America. It was based on a cycle, planetary cycle, developed by Andre Barbeau, shortly after World War II that is the best political and military indicator of when wars and economic depressions erupt. And um, using that particular cycle and going back from the time of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire to current day, we could exactly determine, and this was just taking these planetary cycles, putting them on a graph, and just demonstrating very clearly when particular economic upsurges and depressions and likely wars would result before and after those periods. One of the interesting things is that we could see the 1929 the uh, 1873 crash. And we are also now witnessing what I believe is going to be the beginning of the 2009 Great Depression. Are you able to determine how long
0: that would last?
2: Probably uh, a lot longer than (laughs) most people are willing to stomach. I think the severity level will peak sometime around 2014. Wow. And then it starts easing up. But I think we're in it And I think uh, we're not out of it until about 2020. 2020.
0: That's not pretty. No. So we can't do anything to change it.
2: Uh, We can. There's uh, actually my premise behind why this is happening. The reasons we're heading into a depression are due primarily to the fact the world economy is dependent on oil. And that oil depletion will result in a global economic collapse. This is the beginning because the fact that markets can rise – double their value in five years' rise, is essentially based on cheap oil, cheap energy reserves and resources. This is no longer sustainable or available. There is not enough oil to meet global demand. That is also compounded by other factors, such as the climate changes and water distribution problems, the global water distribution issues that I see that will be around the corner.
0: So our political candidates then are clearly right to talk about reducing our nation's dependence on foreign oil.
2: Absolutely. In fact, I did a horoscope for the moment of inauguration on January 20th, 12 p.m. 2009 and wanted to look at that chart, regardless of who was president, what would be the issues and initiatives of the next administration one of the things i see happens to be what i would call a new deal program but instead of doing public work projects on dams and roads we're going to actually cultivate and develop a new form of green technology alternative technology that deals with nano systems and nanotechnology and alternative energy systems much more cutting edge than the current systems that are being discussed now. So, do we have to read between the lines to
0: figure out who our next president will be, or have you done that forecasting for us already? On
2: my website, I've been posting um, not only the winner, but the winner of each key battleground state using this method of political contest horror taking the time based on the data of a poll and then doing that snapshot. And then assessing from there, who is the likely winner of that state?
0: Well, I don't want to give away the likely winner until we talk about the swing states or at least a couple of them. Okay, sure. Florida, of course, a big swing state here.
2: Okay. my Right now, the polls show Obama doing well in Florida. He's about two or three points ahead, depending on which poll you look at. My indication showed I think McCain's going to squeak Florida out. I'm expecting Florida to go to McCain. Virginia. Virginia will go to Obama. He's well ahead there now. He's outspending McCain 4 to 1. The astrological indicators, uh, a prediction I made in September, early September, showed that he would win Virginia handily. Ohio? Ohio right now is too close to call. I haven't been able to make a determination. The astrological and polls, astrological indicators and polls are showing Obama is trending ahead, but it has not been determined because there is more undecided voters in, in Ohio, and that's showing in the elective chart as well. What's interesting is the horror seems to pretty much correlate with most of what the pollsters are saying. But the three states that I cannot determine at this time, which I believe will determine the outcome of this election definitively, is going to be Missouri, Ohio, and North Carolina. No, those are three states that John McCain must win. So those are the states to watch for.
0: But when you look at the likely winner, who do you come up with?
2: Right now, I see Obama winning handily. If 53% of the vote is a landslide. I see him easily moving into that. He's definitely moved beyond that threshold. I see him getting, right now, currently as it stands, my projections show Obama winning well into 350-some-odd electoral college votes, and getting 53 to 55% of the vote.
0: Let me ask you your track record on all of this.
2: Okay. The last election, I picked George Bush as the winner. I was only wrong with Wisconsin. The election before that, I picked Al Gore. However, I was only wrong with one state, Florida. And all of this is published. All of this is on my website. It's been published previously. So I have some track record here on this. The main thing where astrologers get it wrong is they look at the natal charts of the contestants. And since it's not a popularity contest, as we learned in 2000, right, where Gore won uh, essentially one million votes more than Bush, because it's not a popularity contest, you can't use the chart. So you have to use this particular method of astrology and then apply it on much broader terms.
0: William, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. William Stick Evers is a New York City astrologer. He's online at WilliamStickEvers.com. And the stars are aligning for the end of our show. I'm George Boraki. My thanks to producer McCall Neria. Have a great weekend.